Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Our main objective for this workshop is to share experience, strength, and hope on how AA can thrive with even greater inclusivity and sensitivity to barriers to accessing AA. It's our great hope from tonight that AA members, our sponsors, and all our fellowship can better share information, increase awareness, and support one another. Tonight, we have invited five speakers who are sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous, Madeline P. from Happy Valley, and a diverse panel discussing their personal struggles, barriers, and solutions regarding safety, inclusivity, and diversity in AA. Part of uh, my background is that um, as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, I began to really consider this topic um, probably about um, 15, um, 18 years ago um, in my own personal life. And uh, like many of us, um, I came from a background where I wasn't safe as a child. Um, I got sober and came into the rooms where I wasn't safe in the rooms. Um, and uh, and so um, it, it really has been one of those things that has been um, uh, at the forefront of my mind. You know, part of my story is I went on to become a forensic nurse um, after I got sober um, and worked with people who were um, victims of uh, child abuse, domestic violence, and um, sexual assault. So um, that also really um, made me examine a lot of the culture within our rooms. And I think that's probably the most important thing that has shifted in the last few years. The things that we talk about tonight are not new. They've always been with us. But our our vision to those things, our our insight into those things has changed um things that um we we never considered before which are actually even criminal actions we've actually started to look at it and say wait a minute this is criminal um things that are just disruptive or inappropriate i I just think our entire culture um as the safety card talks about being a microcosm of that society that microcosm has been shifting and things that we just um kind of the old attitude of uh, we don't talk about it <laughs> in present company kind of um, attitude has really taken a shift in Alcoholics Anonymous, um, where we are saying, yes, um, this is appropriate to talk about. Yes, it is okay to address it. Yes, it is okay to say it's not all right. I think that's been one of the biggest shifts that's been happening. It, and, it, you know, they always say, you know, um, changing Alcoholics Anonymous um you know a, a knee-jerk reaction is three years um and it takes us about 30 days to make instant coffee so you know we are slow movers um but we are seeing what's happening in the outside world begin to affect the inside world and for us to really start taking um a look at that i think our demographics slow as it may be because we are still predominantly a 55 year old white male society um, but even some of that demographic and the voices within it are starting to change. And that has um, changed the um, the communication um, and the conversation within the room. So I think those are some of the things that have really started to drive some of this, where we're um, 
you know, when we talk about doing a group inventory, there's nothing worse than for me than seeing a group who does an inventory and all they did was pat each other on the back and say, ain't it great? The wind stopped blowing. And they really didn't ever say, what could we really do better? Um, and I think for me, when we talk about safety, we talk about inclusivity and diversity, the biggest question we have to ask ourselves is who's not here? And then we have to say why. Um, and we really have to dig deep and take our own inventory and say why. Um, and so for me, you know, um, uh, I think that when we talk about safety, we're talking about um, disruptive members, um, whether that be because of a mental health concern or um, whatever else is going on with them. I don't believe that most people who are um, threatening and disruptive in a meeting um, uh, came out of the womb that way. I believe there's something going on. Um, and, uh, I believe bullies, um, we've had to talk a lot about bullies in the rooms. Most of the time there's someone with either time or clout within the room and, uh, and it goes unchecked, um, watching someone be bullied in, in the meeting of Alcox Anonymous and no one says anything because the person doing the bullying, um, is one of the gurus in the group. Um, uh, financial predators, you know, I always laugh. You know, I think sometimes we're more upset about people who steal our money than we are about people who sexually assault members. Um, and for those who don't know, um, the reason we started holding hands during the closing prayer in Alcox Anonymous was not out of deep spiritual concern. It's because the basket was disappearing while we had our eyes closed. So we started holding hands so that the basket wouldn't disappear. Um, but, uh, but our approach to financial predators and, and, Involving our traditions and our warranties in those discussions about what we do with the financial predator is really important. Um, uh, domestic violence, you know, what do we do? You know, my own home group is is one um, is meeting in an online platform and we've had someone who has a restraining order and they are not supposed to come even into that online meeting. And uh, and it is a violation of their restraining order for them to show up. Um, and so what do you do as a group when those things happen, whether it be a face-to-face -face meeting or, um, or, or in an online platform when inappropriate behavior is going on? Um, and I think so many times, and I know for me as a woman, um, where I've just become immune to comments or behaviors, um, and, uh, and that I just kind of, you know, brush it off instead of maybe addressing it. So in our on our new our new normal, um, are we looking at that and making sure that um, people feel safe? Um, probably the biggest thing in um, that's kind of also not talked about is the racism and gender discrimination that happens um, many times, not even um, uh, covertly, but just out in the open, and that we don't address. Um, within our rooms, you know, most of us think that the third tradition was, uh, was crafted all about drugs. You know, when everyone gets upset about drug addicts being in AA, they always think that that was the driving force behind the third tradition. And actually it wasn't. The key issues facing our country at the time that Bill wrote the third tradition were not about whether or not you're a drug addict and whether to let you in. It was about the color of your skin and your gender identity. That was the, that was what really drove the crafting of the third tradition was, um, for people of color and gender identity. So, um, there has been a lot of just, um, out in the open, um, uh, uh, aggression and discrimination against folks for their gender identity and for their race and their culture. Um, and, uh, 
I just think so much of it is about us not willing to have the conversations, but I'm so happy because we are having the conversations today. Um, and for anyone who thinks a workshop is going to give you all the answers, the workshop opens Pandora's box um, and many times gives you some tools to say, what do we need to do as a group? Um, where are those conversations? What do we need to talk about ahead of time in case these things happen? And what do we need to do when it happens? There is no cookie cutter solution to any of the problems that we face. Um, there's shared solutions, but then it really is about um, that second tradition um, in working it through that group conscience and making informed decisions. There are groups that have developed safety committees um, that that's all they do is address safety issues. They're an ad hoc committee of the group. Um, they're trusted members who, whether it be um, addressing someone and their behavior or whatever, but they're the ones who make sure they're dealing with facts, not not rumor, not, you know, uh, gossip in making those decisions. Um, I want to give a shout out to our accessibilities chair for um, we're in Area 58, um, Sarah M. Woo -woo. Um, she made a um, group inventory for safety um, out of all the um, uh uh, discussion that has taken place that she's participated in for a group to go through and look at them and take their own inventory when it comes to safety and access because her platform is if a meeting isn't safe it's not accessible um so you know really today i'm here because i'm so excited about hearing the other people on the panel because there are so many things that fall underneath safety um and anyone who just thinks that if you just read the yellow guidelines or read the yellow card, that that solves it all. It's such a bigger issue because I've had so many conversations where people have had to say, tell me about something very specific going on. And you're like, wow, you've got to really kind of work through that one. Um, there's not a cookie cutter answer to it. Um, the one cookie cutter answer I will give you is substitute where it occurred. Um, if it occurred at your workplace, if it occurred in the grocery store, if it occurred in some type of civic arena, what would happen if that person did the same thing? And uh, many times there's situations where we go, well, I would call the cops. <laughs> and it's like, bingo. Um, the good thing about AA is we don't have any police. Um, and that's because there's a thing called real police and we utilize them. So um, I, I think that hopefully tonight's workshop brings up discussion and maybe some specific problems and maybe there will be some shared um, uh, experience strength and hope on those issues in order for people to be able to take that back. But it's a large discussion. It's still evolving. And uh, my, my um, biggest takeaway is I'm just so glad that it's occurring and that we're willing to t continue taking it on and, um, and look at how we can and do that true inventory and say, what could we do better so that the rooms of alcoholics and moms are safe. Thank you. Thanks for sharing, Madeline. <clears throat> so we can answer as many audience questions as possible. <clears throat> I'd like to ask you to keep your responses to two minutes. We'll be setting a timer so that when the bell dings, your time is up. The first question for you, Madeline, is, so what is our position if there's a restraining order? If it's between two people and we're supposed to have no opinion on outside issues? Um. Yes, and it is. That's exactly it. It's between two people. And, but if I am, uh, moderating a meeting, um, in, uh, admitting people, and I know that person is not supposed to be there, I'm not going to allow them in. Um, and, uh, um, because what's going to happen, um, is that other person who 
um, is in fear for their life um, is going to leave that meeting because of that person being there. Now, think about the situations where we don't know. Um, and so we don't get involved in like calling the police and doing all that. That really is between those two people. But if I know someone's trying to enter my meeting that has a restraining order or like we have one gentleman um, from my home group who was trespassed. He's not allowed to be there. Um, we had to take it all the way to a trespass order. So, um, you know, that was a group decision to trespass um, in conjunction with the church um, uh, signing off on that. So, um, yes, if I don't know about it. That's one thing. I think if someone tells me um, that they're not supposed to be there um, because there's a restraining order, Depends on whether I know that it's really true or not. Some people may say there's a restraining order. I may not know it for a fact. Um, I had the experience that we knew it for a fact, and we knew that person was not supposed to be there. We have a waiting room, and we left them there. So call me a bitch. Thanks. So here's another question from the audience. Um, how should severe racist Zoom bombing be treated at a meeting? I left a meeting because it wasn't even acknowledged and I did not feel supported. You know, um, that's a very difficult one because, um, you know, obviously we have no control over what happens there. Now, I can tell you that my home group, when it got Zoom bombed, we took our information off of public platform. Um, we share our information widely with members of Alcoholics Anonymous, but we chose to get off of a public platform for that very reason, um, and it is upsetting. I think it's a really good time for people to say, and and I think the big deal in that question was when people don't even acknowledge it. Well, here's the thing. It depends on what happened in the meeting. Um, when we got Zoom bombed, there was so much chaos and confusion. It was difficult to know what all was being said. Um, my biggest takeaway, I didn't even hear it, was that the guy was yelling for me to show him my you know, anyway, uh, I thought of all people on the call that he wanted to have flashing, I was not the one. But uh, but there was a lot of stuff. And, and so sometimes I think, um, did everyone hear what happened? Um, and what was the response? My response that I, when I'd been in meetings that were bombed, was everyone was immediately muted and they kicked all those people out. Um, uh, and I think... Uh, it depends on whether or not someone obviously felt like it was directed towards them. My experience with Zoom bombing has been they're just they're just putting it out there. They're just trying to see who they can offend with anything that's offensive. Um, and it may not have been directed at an individual. May have. May have called some, they called me out by name um, when they made the um, derogatory remark to me. Um, but uh um, I, I wasn't there, so I don't know if someone said something directly to someone um, and, and whether it was all focused on someone. So I would hope that people would say, I'm so sorry that happened. Are you hey. okay? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So here's a quick one, um, and that is, um, where can we find a safety and, ac and uh, access group inventory? Oh, if you go to the website for Oregon Area 58 and you go to the uh, to the special service committees and you click on access, she's got it on her page. Um, and Sarah is part of this call uh, or is part of this workshop. 
Um, but it is a, a great tool, um, or at least to use as a starting point for a group who wants to take their inventory with relationship to safety and access. Yeah. And just as a, an addendum, the um, link to that access page on for the district website is in the kit that we are offering everybody. Perfect. Thanks. Right, thanks, Madeline. Um, our second panelist is Gina. How are you? Oh, can you hear me? Hi, Gina. Okay, hi. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for making this space and this safe space so people could come and share their experience, their strength, and their hope. And my experience as a woman of color, as a black woman in AA, it was... Um, kind of unique, me moving from L.A. to Southern Oregon, um, because, you know, L.A. is a pretty diverse community. Where I'm from, it's just this big melting pot of people. And uh, coming to Southern Oregon, um, before we moved here, I kind of tested the waters and checked it out and went to a couple of meetings just to see how it was. And my first meeting in um, Ashland, was the 9 a.m. meeting, and I went there and um, as a newcomer to the area, and nobody really approached me, and nobody really came up to me, and as a newcomer to this area, or even a newcomer in AA and a black person, you feel kind of on the outs, and I did. I felt kind of on the outs. It was uncomfortable but I knew that I needed to be there for my sobriety and my sanity, so I stuck around. And um, then I found out there was a 7 a.m. meeting, and I went to that, and once again, walking in as a new person, um, it, I still kind of felt on the outs. But when um, I knew that I had to share and open up my mouth and tell people, you know, I'm here, I'm new, I'm all by myself, nobody knows me. Um, and when I told on myself, then people came up to me. And it was like, oh, okay, you're here, you're new. And um, people began to open up and show me the ropes and tell me about the other meetings and where to go and where they were. And I appreciated that. Um, the safety part of it, for me, safety is so important because when people feel safe, they feel trust. They feel um, like they it's a safe place to be in a good place. So for me, that was important. And I made the 7 a.m. my home group. And uh, from there, I branched out uh, into other meetings. But um, I, being who I am, I'm not a, a shy, quiet person. So I just kind of inserted myself into different meetings and entered, and other people coming up to me. So I really haven't had uh, too much of a turnoff. Um, some people, if people in AA look at me in a certain way, I take, that's their problem. It's not my problem. That's their problem. I'm here to be sober. I'm here to share the message. I'm here to to be of service. If somebody has a problem with me, that is their problem. And that's the way I look at it. I don't need to take on other people's stuff. I turned in that Velcro code a long time ago. So 
I, I do me, I show up, I suit up. Um, and sometimes I've had situations because I've been around for a minute where people have said derogatory things to other black women or women of color. And I have been their sponsor and I will come in and kind of, um, you know, pull them away from that situation and let them know that they don't have to argue that point. They don't have to take that on. It's not their stuff. And um, being in Southern Oregon and realizing how, uh, I'm just going to be me and be honest, how white this state is, and it wasn't until the late 1930s when black people could live here, and uh, a lot of them were already grandfathered in, and seeing the the racism that kind of hangs over Southern Oregon, which I had no idea until I moved here. And then I thought, oh, you know, I didn't know how real it was. But in the rooms, I feel safe. And if somebody has a problem, that's not my problem. And um, I'm grateful that we have this space and this platform. And I heard you say earlier, Molly, that there's a resource um, a resource page because I've been on many panels and I've talked to many people, but if people can't walk away and have something to use to refer back to, or maybe it's something that someone on this panel says that can spark something and they can go back and reference it and find out this is my source, this is where I can go for additional help and information. I think that's so, so important. So I am grateful that Leah asked me to be here in district. Um, I'm grateful that I'm here. The space is here. Awesome panelists. And if there's any questions that anyone has of me, for me, I'm more than happy to answer them. Um, I feel like I kind of twofold. I'm a black woman. I'm a lesbian. I kind of uh, have seen some different things in and out of uh, AA. So I'm here for you if you have any questions to be of service. Thank you. Thanks, Gina. <clears throat> we do have some questions. Um, so we can answer as many audience questions as possible. I'd just like to remind you that um, to please keep your responses to two minutes. We'll be setting a timer. So when the bell dings, it means your time is up. There's um, a first question from the audience. How do we create a more welcoming environment for people of color in our White Valley? Um, something that I believe which would be a great way in our White Valley is for my white brothers and sisters to open up their hearts and educate themselves because um, I believe if black people could have stopped racism, we would have done it a long time ago. However, we are the butt of the racism. We get the brunt of it. So through education, I, I, I feel education is so important so that everybody knows their part in it and how we got here and, and why we're here and the, and the privilege and the fragility and all these words and books that you hear being thrown around. Just to be able to educate yourself and be mindful of each other because at the end of the day, we are all the and so I believe education is the key, Molly. Thanks, Gina. Um, another question. Um, 
How do you address a bully that's also a deacon? For me, my question is, how did that person get to be a deacon? Did they Are they self-made? Um, I believe everybody, we're all the same. You know, I don't look at it as a hierarchy. And if somebody's a bully, they are a bully and they need to be addressed. And I feel like if somebody is a newcomer and new into AA and they are being bullied, I don't want them to go up and um, address that person on their own. Because going back to safety, this needs to be a safe place. But if you pull in uh, a couple of men or women who you can go and talk to that individual together, I believe that's a safer place for everybody. Don't take it on yourself to go there and get to tell that person the what for. That, that's not a safe environment for anyone. Thanks, Gina. Another question from the audience. How can sponsorship aid in keeping our AA meetings safe? How can sponsorship what? Aid in keeping our AA meetings safe. I believe um, being a sponsor and staying right-sized and being able to be open and honest and mindful as a sponsor, being a sponsor doesn't mean that there's any hierarchy. So I believe if somebody has a good program and um, they're coming from a good place, they will keep that safety there. They will keep that the safety net there and welcoming of people. And, you know, it's attraction, not promotion. And when I got my sponsor, it was truly attraction. I've only had two sponsors in my sobriety. But I saw those women and I was like, yep, she's the one. And so when we see that uh, serenity coming from that person, then that is the sponsor that we choose. And I believe attraction and not promotion and that sponsor just having a good program will keep the safety there for us all. Great, thanks. And um, a third question then is, how do I bring these conversations to my group? Um, I believe that you can either do that via um, the monthly meetings that you have when you have your, um, your monthly meetings with your group, and there's no better time than the meeting after the meeting or the meeting before the meeting. Sometimes those can be the best meetings, the meeting after the meeting, when you get together and you share your thoughts and you know, I saw this Zoom town meeting was great, and these are the resources, and you should go look at this and check it out at district. And that's why we have district. And so to me, the meetings after the meetings or before the meetings are the best time to have a conversation so that everybody can feel safe and included in AA, in the rooms of AA. Great. Thanks, Gina. I really appreciate your contributions. Thanks, Molly. I'd like to introduce you to our third speaker, Zoraida. Hi, my name is Zoraida, and I'm an alcoholic. And uh, we serve as a chairperson for Area 5, which is Southern California. And I, I want to thank everyone for um, the invitation to be here. 
Um, yeah, so I, I'm going to talk a little bit about what it's like as a Hispanic woman in, in Alcoholics Anonymous. But before I start there, um, I really want to address um, some of the, uh, the cultural and traditional um, stigmas uh, involved with alcoholism um, in, in the Hispanic community. Um, because before we, we even get to Alcoholics Anonymous, there's already all of these cultural barriers um, that exist um, in, in my culture. I, I come from a Hispanic family. Um, my, my parents are Ecuadorian. And uh, from the very beginning, you know, there's alcoholism in my family, my uh, a few of my uncles and my father and, um, and other cousins. And, and there was never a woman who stood up and said, I'm an alcoholic. I have a problem with alcohol. Uh, the men even didn't stand up and say, I'm an alcoholic. I have a problem with alcohol. My mother was the only one of, of the family that I know of that um, actually came to Alcoholics Anonymous. But um, it, it's, it's shameful. It's disgraceful. Um, in my family um, and, and in my culture to admit that we're alcoholics. Um, it's seen as a weakness already. And uh, not only is it disgraceful for a man, but um, he also brings shame to his family. Um, and for a woman, it, it's, it's even more disgraceful. Um, so for a woman to admit she's an alcoholic, um, she uh, admits that she's dirty, that she's you know, the lowest type of person. Um, so those those barriers exist even before we seek help. And I remember for me, um, when, uh, when I reached my bottom and I came to that decision where I needed to find help outside of myself because I tried so many times and I couldn't stop drinking. And, um, and I, I talked to my mom and, and I mean, this was like my bottom, um, right before I got into that ambulance and I went to the hospital to, to ask the doctor to help me. Um, I remember letting her know, mom, you know, I need help. And, uh, her first instinct was like, no, 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 you're okay. You know, let's, let's get you in the shower. Um, and then we'll take you out and, you know, we'll, we'll go for dinner or something. So even then, you know, I, I hadn't, uh, bathed, I hadn't eaten. I mean, I just spent three days just drinking. And, um, and there was still that shame, you know, um, when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I discovered a whole new world. And I'm one of the fortunate ones where I, I speak English. So I was able to go into um, the English meetings from the very beginning. But um, after a few years being involved in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, working through my steps and um, going uh, to district meetings, and I started getting involved with uh, with the area. And um, one of the things that was really interesting was I didn't realize that there was going to be some sort of bridge that, that allowed me to use uh, my experience, my culture, my, my background um, in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, but one of the things that I wanted to do was really bridge that community because I, I felt as though the Spanish members of our of our area were separate from the English members. And I thought, how can I bridge this? Um, and little by little, I started getting involved and started visiting, um, you know, meetings. I started reaching out to people. And one of the things that was brought to my attention was that there were very few women, Hispanic women in Alcoholics Anonymous in general service. And the more I, I dug, you know, the more I visited groups, the more that I spoke to people um, about this in the Spanish community and, and outside of the Spanish community, um, I realized that uh, that 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 barrier, you know, those things that stopped me that, that could have easily stopped me from seeking help were very prevalent 
um, with Spanish-speaking women in Alcoholics Anonymous, not just inside, not just outside of the rooms, but inside of the rooms as well. Um, I was a lot of people shared stories with me about how when women came to Alcoholics Anonymous, a lot of times they were told that they didn't belong here, you know, that they, they belonged in Al-Anon because they couldn't be alcoholics. Um, there was a lot of uh, things I heard about uh, with uh, sexual harassment, you know, things like um, exchanging sexual favors for signatures on court cards. Um, a, a lot of things happened, you know, a lot of young women coming here, um, being sexually harassed and not staying. And, and because a lot of women didn't stay in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, when, when newcomers would come, they'd find rooms full of men and no women. And so um, I, I'll share one experience um, that happened to me personally. Um, I remember going to a Spanish meeting, and, uh, and this was when I was serving at the area, so, so I knew better. Um, but but I, I went in and I sat down and um, there were no women in the meeting. It was a Spanish group. And, uh, you know, I identified myself when I walked in. I didn't have a court card. I, I maybe said hello to one or two people. I sat down and um, the first person that went up to the podium to share um, started sharing stories about sexual conquest and panties and um, things that if I were a newcomer, I would have left and never come back. Um, I felt so uncomfortable that I got up and I left. And um, I, I always remember that uh, because in that moment, it was such a, a, a vulnerable moment to be a Hispanic woman in a Spanish-speaking uh, meeting surrounded by men that I didn't know. I can't imagine what it would have been for a, like for a newcomer. Um, so I heard more and more of these stories. And, and one of the things that, that happened was... Um, it was almost as though, I, I can't explain it, but the more that I spoke and the more that I reached out to other women, I kept hearing these stories. And, and little by little, you know, we, we started to, to, to talk about how do we find a solution to this? You know, what can we do to change this? Um, and one of the things that, that we realized that was missing was the unity among women. Because up until then, there were only four Spanish-speaking women's meetings in, in all of California. And that was like two up in San Francisco and two in San Diego and nothing in between. So, so who's reaching out to all those women in between um, that are dying of alcoholism? There wasn't anyone there. Um, so we started opening meetings and we, we formed a Hispanic women's workshop. And, you know, for a lot of the Spanish speaking women who didn't have that choice to go to an English meeting or a Spanish meeting like, like I did, they were forced to go into Spanish meetings. But now there was a solution. Now they could go to a Spanish-speaking women's meeting where it was safe, where they didn't have to be sexually harassed, where they could find a sponsor, um, and they didn't have to depend on a man to sponsor them. And, and I'm not saying that all the Spanish groups are like this, because there's some amazing groups, and you know, in some of the groups that I visited, um, they really lift up women, and they really uh, practice spiritual principle, and, and they want this fellowship. They realize the importance of unity, and uh, and they realize the importance of, of spiritual principles that we learn in the steps and the traditions and the concepts and the things that they practice. Um, but as a newcomer, if you walk into a meeting, you don't know what you're going to get, you know. And, and if you happen to walk into one of those meetings where uh, there is sexual harassment, there's no sponsorship, there's no women available, um, then, then that's your impression of what Alcoholics Anonymous is. And, and why would you come back? You know, I would rather die of alcoholism than, 
than be in a meeting and get sexually harassed and uh, not have access to a solution. Um, so we started these meetings and um, and there was a common bond, you know, it was like this, this fellowship just kind of came alive. Um, and uh, we started reaching women from other other states. And, uh, and I realized that it wasn't just an issue in Southern California or in California at all. It was really a deep-seated cultural and traditional issue. And, um, and, you know, women from Mexico and South America and Central America and different, different states within the United States reached out to me and, and talked to me about what they were experiencing. And, um, and, and it, it's just been so incredible, you know, to, to have, uh, a place where where women can get together, um, and uh, this year we're we're celebrating our fifth uh, Hispanic Women's Workshop, and it's just amazing. And it's more than likely going to be on Zoom, um, but uh, the incredible thing too is that with with Zoom, you know, um, it's given us an opportunity to have Hispanic women's meetings um, on Zoom and have women come in from different countries. You know, and so now they're hearing the message. Um, there was a big need to to have some sort of uh, third tradition material um, to go out to the fellowship so that uh, people can have access to um, Alcoholics Anonymous and to stories. Hispanic women could have access to stories that they could relate to when they walk into a meeting and they don't see any other women there. And so um, I was able to write... Um, to the to the conference and request a third tradition uh, material for Hispanic uh, Spanish speaking women and um, and and what that did is it got the fellowship talking you know it brought awareness so people were talking about it in their districts and people were talking about it in their areas um, and it brought awareness to to these these things that that Spanish speaking women were going through and and the needs in the community um, so it, it it's done much more than uh, and help reach Spanish-speaking women, but it really has unified the Spanish-speaking community. Um, and one of the, the main things that, um, that I love my sponsor, but one of the things that she always tells me is that the steps, you know, you can apply the steps to everything. And, and I, I guarantee that if, uh, if from the beginning, um, you know, a, a little group of us had gone to meetings and said, you're wrong, you're doing things wrong, you need to change. I don't think that the, the results would have, would have been what they are now, you know, um, but, uh, but doing things with spiritual principle and, uh, bringing awareness and, um, practicing love, um, has been something really amazing. And, and a lot of those people that, that were, uh, in, in those questionable groups before, um, can see a difference now. And, and they realize um, that, that things need to change. And slowly our fellowship has been changing. Um, and that's been something super incredible. And I think my time is up. <laughs> but thank you so much for uh, inviting me today. Well, and thank you so much, Zoraida. That's been really in, in, informative. Um, just as a reminder, <clears throat> I'd like to ask you to keep your responses to two minutes. We'll set a timer. So when the bell dings, your time is up. And I have... Um, some long questions for you that you're going to have to give short answers to. <laughs> what suggestions can you give to, to us to help us reach out to our Hispanic community here in Medford? Um, people who are English speakers 
that attend uh, Spanish-speaking meetings, and and even just a, a, a simple little thing like when uh, when you see someone Spanish-speaking at the area assemblies, you know, is um, saying hello and uh, introducing yourself. Um, those little things bridge the gap um, over the long run. Great, thanks. And um, so a, a second question. And again, I think this is going to be a a longer one than you, I don't know. Uh, in my, this is from a person who says, in my district, many of the sexual assault or harassment complaints come out in a closed women's meeting. When discussing this with some of the men in the district, they suggest that the women identify the offender and then the men will take care of it. But as a woman in AA who's been sexually assaulted at a meeting, I was not interested in announcing this across the district. How do we get men to start working on solving this safety issue without us having to address it? It isn't a problem the women can fix since they aren't the cause. Wow, that's a little um, I would say that if, if I were sexually harassed, if someone approached me physically, I would call the police. And so I think that people need to be aware that that's an option, that they don't have to take that complaint to the members of their group who don't have the authority to really do much about it. Okay, thanks. Uh, another question, um, have you had any pushback from male Hispanic members to your women's forum? Yes, um, absolutely. Uh, I mean, a lot of the, the it's a work in progress. Um, about a year ago, we uh, wanted to get our women's meeting listed in the Spanish central office and there was a lot of pushback there, even though we had a, uh, a group number and we were registered with the general service office, um, they kept insisting that we weren't a group, that we couldn't be a group because we were a women's meeting. Um, so there, there still is a lot of pushback, but I think with, uh, you know, things changing um, in the area, things like um, instead of saying, you know, we're a fellowship of men and women, saying we're a fellowship of people, I think that broadens um, who Alcoholics Anonymous is, just a little bit wider. Hmm. Thanks. And if somebody wanted more information uh, for the Hispanic Women's Workshop, where would they look? Oh, I'll put the information um, in the chat, and you can send me an email, and I can give you some more information. Great. Thanks. Um, Another question. So what I hear is that basically you created your own group. That's what I've seen African-Americans have done here in Portland. Um, can you comment on this? Yeah, so it's isolated the women into like this little corner where we meet and we just have our own group. Um, the women's meetings have been something that sprout up just like any English-speaking women's meetings where it's it's an option for a woman to go, but um, what, what women learn there is, is how to be treated in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, how to apply a spiritual principle into their recovery. And they go back into their regular groups and they don't put up with it anymore. They know better now. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for all of your sharing and your information has been incredibly helpful. Um, now for our fourth speaker, Alex. 
Hi, I am Alex, and I'm an alcoholic. Um, and I like a she, her pronoun, um, which just means that when you speak about me, you can say, Alex is so wonderful. I love her. Whenever I'm around her, I can't help but bask in her magical glow. <laughs> she is a beacon of light. And you're also welcome to speak poorly about me, but make sure you use a she, her, hers pronoun. So, um, yeah, I <laughs> I feel a little intimidated about being on on this panel because um, folks who have shared things have shared just really amazing stuff. And I apologize for my lighting. I am set up to do um, more office, office-y things during the day. And so I'm like trying to figure out how to best be seen later at night when the sun is setting. Um, oh, and I didn't start my own timer, which I meant to do and I'm doing right now. So um, when, when thinking about, you know, I identify as a trans person, um, I, a trans woman, I announce my pronouns, um, in this setting and, and I do in many meetings and I think people have feelings about that, which they're totally welcome to have. And, um, I think, you know, I, so many things that were already said, I really agree and resonate with like when Zoraida was talking about like community community culture playing an impact in how she entered AA, you know, obviously it is a different type of oppression and, and a different culture and community, but coming from queer and trans communities where alcohol use is like central to group dynamics in most cases, um, and really valued and downplayed, um, you know, that, that, I came very loaded with a lot of things as a trans person. I came very loaded with a lot of things as well. Like, um, that people would not accept me or want me in their group. Um, particularly because I had a, a strong belief that Alcoholics Anonymous would be very religious, um, which for many people it is, right? That's not, that's not a fake story I was telling myself. And there are absolutely groups where I have experienced a lot of, uh, pretty overt, exclusion or discomfort from the members like that's absolutely true but i, I want to talk a little bit about some of the things that i think mitigated that and helped um so one of them i think is that just i if i had come to aa in my early 20s um i'm i'm about to be 30 um if i came had come to AA in my early 20s i don't know how it would have been because there would have been a lot of stuff that i didn't know how to spot and so I was able to avoid being in a lot of situations that my younger self absolutely would have fallen prey to. Um, I have had people from meetings um, very persistently and inappropriately hit on me in ways that I was not interested in. Um, and a, a lot of predation and just like creepiness. Um, I think something that mitigated that was like, I knew with my sponsor that, that even though I did not want to talk about those things, was that the expectation was that we would talk about that stuff. Um, and so that made a huge difference. Like when somebody was asking a sponsorship question, I totally get it because even just naming that with her and having it be something that we could talk about made it something that I felt like I could bring to the group or something that like, I just, it, it made a huge difference in my experience in AA and made it possible for me to keep coming back, right. To have a plan of how I was going to handle those situations. And all of that to say, right. Like I, I was not being creepy 
and there's nothing, but there's nothing that we can do about those creepy folks other than name it, identify it, and have conversations as a group about it, which I think is really important to do. And I think that the conversation about men needing to do their work is also super important. I don't have the answer there other than like, let's find, let's find the people who need to be doing, having those conversations and make some asks, right? Um, as women, as trans folks. Uh, for me, um, my first AA meeting was a women's meeting. I was really intimidated to go. I was not like doing super great. It wasn't like my best moment <laughs> when I came to AA, as it is not for many of us. And I would not have been successful if I had not been able to be brought in by someone I knew who was a queer woman. And she brought me in and people were asking questions about whether or not I should be there based on what they assumed about my genitalia, which none of them knew. And, and um, what they assumed about my body, which happens to me pretty regularly in like everyday life as well. Um, people, you know, asking whether or not I was supposed to be in a place. And she was able to say, this is a woman. She uses she, her pronouns. This is a meeting that it's appropriate for her to be at. Right. And that happened at my first meeting there. And it wasn't like a big scuffle. It was a, just a conversation. And I understand why they were asking, even though it's upsetting. Um, but that lineage of like having that queer and trans connection was really important. And for me personally, you know, there might be queer and trans people in AA who don't want to connect with each other. That's, that's a possible thing, but that's not been my experience. Queer and trans people are looking for each other in meetings. And so I think often if you, one thing that you can really easily do is if a lot of people have already touched on um, the, how important it is to be welcomed into a meeting. Um, at, and I think that that is so pivotal. I see a lot of cisgender people, right? I'm trans, so if you don't identify as trans, you probably identify as cisgender. Those are the cliff notes. I could give you a longer presentation later because I'm a career queer. I do this all day. Um, but um, so, you know, when cisgender people sometimes are scared to come up to me because I think they're worried about handling it wrong. I think a lot of times we as white people do that to folks of color, right? Worried about handling it wrong so we don't say hi. And the impact of that is... I'm not welcome here. I'm not wanted here. And people don't know what to do with me. Absolutely is the impact. And so I'm, you know, I'm queer. So it's easy for me to say that I always make an effort when somebody who's entered the room, who I know their experience is like, they're coming loaded with a lot of fear about entering a very white, straight, man-dominated environment. I really make an effort to say hello, to talk to them about their experience, and then to offer to connect them to people who might have some shared experience. I think that's really huge. And I think you can do that for folks of color who are coming in the rooms, right? In a way that's not like being an asshole and just being racist, right? Like you can say, hey, you know, if you would you like to connect to other folks of color in AA? Would you like to connect to other queer and trans people in AA? I know someone I can connect you with them, right? Like that is a powerful moment of like recognizing that we're coming to this experience with different experiences. I took some notes. Let me see what I haven't talked about. Um, oh, okay. So here's a tough thing is I'm trans and out about that in AA. <laughs> so sometimes I become like the, the trans expert in a room. Um, I, it's really uncomfortable. And, and I'm sure this happens to other folks around their identities. Um, so my, I hate to like give, ask for people to do something that's like, don't do this, but like, don't in a regular meeting, ask me a bunch of questions about like, my genitals or how I have sex or like how queer and trans people are in general, right? Like that is not helpful to me. Um, and do like connect queer and trans folks who are seeking community with me. But I also like, 
you know, there are some people who are like figuring out a gender identity thing while in AA and that's super. And I'm down to talk to them a little bit, but I also like, am not a therapist, you know, like share experience, strength and hope, but I am not a case manager for all trans people in the Valley. And, and that hasn't happened too badly here. And like, you know, I'm in both rooms, so I sort of enjoy it anyway. Like it's, it, there's like, there's like a, I have to talk to my sponsor about it. Right. <laughs> um, those, those are some things. Um, I, I think for me, like family lineage, I'm from a lineage of queer women and sponsorship. And that, that's actually something I want to talk about. Uh, and they are all cisgender, you know, lesbian or dyke identified folks, um, uh, which is super for them and different than my experience, but I sought them out. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about sponsorship. I think trans people in particular, like really suffer in the sponsorship process. You know, there's a pamphlet on sponsorship and a direct quote, which I have pulled up is a experience does suggest that it is best for men to sponsor men, women to sponsor women. This custom usually helps our members stay focused on the AA program. Some gay men and lesbians feel an opposite sex sponsor is more appropriate for similar reasons. So I'm trans. So I have to really throw a monkey wrench in that whole paragraph to begin with. Like they didn't design that with me in mind. And I'm at peace with that. Like Bill W and I have reconciled it. Um, but like what I will say is I think it's great for people to have a sponsor that is not someone they want to have sex with. I think that's a super great idea. Love that. And other than that, I think any rigidity about it is really unhelpful, um, especially in queer and trans communities. Like I don't know why there's so much policing of that because I never planned to sleep with any of my lesbian sponsors, but there are absolutely gay men who could have sponsored me that I would have found interesting, right? And I, so I didn't do that. And, and it's a complicated conversation that I've had to talk about very quickly here, but let people sponsor who they want with keeping an eye for absolutely people being victimized, which is the origin of that rule, right? The rule about same gender sponsorship was a rule that was created originally to protect cisgender women from cisgender men predation in a sponsorship relationship with most, which most of us have seen. So like honor the spirit of that rule by preventing predation by not putting people together who would be likely to want to bone. Like it's just a wise choice <laughs> in your recovery. Um, and then I did want to touch on, I know I'm just about out of time, but I did want to touch on, you know, there was a great question asked to Gina about um, whiteness. I want to say like, I'm a white trans person. There are tons of queer and trans, trans folks of color, trans women of color um, are in particular the, the most murdered demographic in the United States, right? And so like, how are we supporting people who are, like I was asked and able, and able to be on this panel because I was able to find some access. Most trans people don't for whatever reason. And some of that's their own stuff, but a lot of it is the group, right? And so what is it like if folks are coming in and there is, this exponential worry about, well, will they accept me because I'm trans? Will they accept me because I'm a person of color? Will they accept me because I'm black? You know, I have advocated for deaf queer people before who were being marginalized in a really particular way because they were deaf and queer. So um, for white folks, you know, when is the right time to have these conversations? Like, when isn't it, right? Like, if you see something, what is stopping you from talking to your group about this? Like, this is our work to be doing. And, and in my view, it is actually dishonest not to address the racism that you are viewing in the group and to say, oh, you know, that other white person is racist. Well, listen, I bet that you once have done a racist thing. I sure have. I'm a lot different than I was when I was 15, right? And so 
you actually are that person. That person is me. And it's our job to talk to all of us as white people about our bullshit. And, and, and if you are not doing that, I would say it's not very program aligned. And I think I'm at time. You have another minute or two if you've got a little bit more to um, say. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think. Oh, let's give it more time for questions if there are any for me. Okay. How about that? <clears throat> okay, so um, here's the first one. Uh, I have a question. Do you have any suggestions for cisgender members who are sponsoring a person who's transgender? Um, yeah. Uh, you, so my suggestions are be kind to yourself, be kind to the person, admit when you don't know, right? Like, and there will be times when you don't. You do not have to be an expert on transgender identity to help me not drink today. You don't have to be. Um, all my sponsors have been cis folks. I think trans on trans sponsorship is great when it can happen. Um, I love that. Um, oop, my alarm's going off. Um, and, but I think, it's okay to admit you don't know and to seek guidance from other members or other other books to, to advise the person to get outside help, like knowing it is beyond your skill to heal. Um, and and to say that and to say, you know, I don't even know what to say to that. I'm just so glad you told me. And let's figure out how to talk about this together because gender stuff is complicated and hard. Great. Um, another question. What would you do if you walked into a women's meeting today and were told you weren't allowed to attend? Um, yeah, I think about this a lot because I always worry that it will happen every time I go to a new women's meeting. Um, <laughs> um, well, I mean, I probably I wouldn't go back to that meeting, um, which is a shame for everyone involved. I mean, that's, that's what I do. Uh, and I might say something about it, but I might not because... I, I'm a busy woman and I haven't got all day to quote Ursula. Like I just, uh, if I'm not wanted, I'll go somewhere where I am welcome. And I would work to make change in a group that I'm part of. But if I'm greeted with dismissal, that I have no foothold to make change. So what do we do to create a more welcoming environment for people uh, of diverse backgrounds? Well, so... That's a big question. Um, I think there's lots of things. Um, when I introduce myself and my pronouns, I think people might be tempted to say tradition 10, we take no stance on outside issues. That's really a practical thing, right? Like, I just want you to know how to talk about me appropriately. Like, it would be dishonest of me not to share that with you because you might say the wrong thing. And then I just have to correct you anyway. So if, I, if I'm trying to be, like, rigorously honest about what's going on for me, right? Otherwise, I'll resent you because you're doing it wrong. So, like... Let's just, you know, you can, any meeting can add pronoun introductions and you think a lot of groups will tell me, well, we don't have any trans people. And I'm like, well, I wonder why you're not introducing us. You know, you're not making an effort, right? Like, oh, we don't have any people of color in our group. Well, why not? Like, <laughs> what are, what are, change the question. This is the key thing, the, the, the simplest way to say it. Sometimes we say, and I do this often as a white person, I really have to correct my thinking about this. We say, well, why isn't X group coming to our stuff? And let's change the question from what are we not doing to make people feel welcome here? Like what, what are we not doing and recognizing that the fault is ours and, and then we can actually do meaningful work. 
Do you have any outreach suggestions for our committees in general service? Uh, it, committees in general service. I do not know. What is that? What do you mean? <laughs> Um, like service to a group? Well, our committees in, um, at the district level. Ah, my, my regional, my regional self is showing. I moved here from Texas, which is where I started in AA. So sometimes the structure is a little unfamiliar to me. Um, okay. so I, you know, I think, do I have recommendations? I am totally blanking. I apologize. I think in general, though, you know, let's say explicitly that when, when let's talk explicitly about trans identity and, and say that trans people are welcome and that if we're not seeing them, that's a gap, right? Just like we would with any other marginalized, minoritized community. Um, that's what I think should happen. That's my basic answer. Okay. Um, thank you. I'm trying to see the time as well. Um, Am I able to attend a gay and lesbian meeting as a straight individual? I mean, like, sure, like you can do whatever you want. Like, I don't, nobody's made to show their card. Um, and I'm part of a queer meeting that happens in the, that was a joke. We don't actually have cards. Um, so, you know, uh, I am part of a queer meeting that happens in the Valley and, um, well, now it happens on Zoom. So it happens everywhere. And um, there are straight folks who come to that meeting. And what I'll say about that is that, you know, unless a group has an explicit rule and they'll say that if they do, I, I do facilitate a meeting that is for trans, gender nonconforming, two-spirit, genderqueer, gender fluid folks only. Um, and if you don't know what those terms mean, it doesn't matter. You can still help those people be sober. But that meeting is just for those people. Um, but we have straight folks at our queer meetings and we love them. And I'll also say that, like, uh, today is straight people or tomorrow's queer people, right? Like I identified as straight at one time. Like I didn't always identify as a woman, right? Like you, so, uh, like be rigorously honest with yourself and admit that you are out of control of your own destiny and you may discover things about yourself that lead you to identify in a new way. And if you're curious about those things, you should be in the queer meeting. Like if you feel compelled to and called to go and it's not making a problem for queer and trans people, then get in, you know, there's plenty of sobriety to go around. We can all soak it up. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks, Alex. I think what I'll do is save the rest of these questions for the time after the, uh, everybody's spoken. That sounds lovely. Great. Thanks, y'all. So now I'd like to introduce our fifth speaker for tonight, Gary. Hey, everybody. You got my voice? Oh, yeah. Yes. All right. Well, uh, I'm Gary, I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I have a home group, I have a sponsor. Um, member of this uh, Alcoholics Anonymous Fellowship here in the Rogue Valley. You know, uh, one can uh, say that there's two ways to look at what we're talking about tonight, you know. And it's the individual and the fellowship the society itself, you know, uh, I, I'm concerning myself lately a lot more with, um, committee work and like organ area committee work and reaching out to different, uh, organizations and whatnot, you know, um, 
and this allows me to have a uh, an entry point out in say like these native communities that I get to be involved in and being a native man myself it makes for an easy entry you know so so what what does that leave our our society you know uh, I, I can speak from my experience as a native man and other native folks who have been through this program all the way through still with it or not even a part of it anymore you know we come in prepackaged you know a lot of our native people are just pissed and angry and, you know and it's just how we are you know and why the hell should i listen to you you know there's a whole lot going on from uh, uh this greater world like that that has me put on my running shoes to get away from, it. you know, w when I come into the room and I see just a, a whole room full of stale pale males, the enemies who I perceive in my life, you know, it's up to me to understand that the real enemy really is me and my thinking. You know, that's my individual accountability here. You know, um, I mean, I was so full of rage and so full of hatred when I came in these rooms, you know, it just flew off me and you did not want to be anywhere near me, you know. And so, you know, I, I sit in the rooms and I just roil about, well, should I listen? Should I not listen? You know, I'm trying to hear uh, these things, these clue words of inclusivity, of openness of understanding you know and so uh, it becomes extremely important the words we express to each other in alcoholics anonymous you know so you know luckily there was somebody who was uh, pretty open with me when i came back to the rooms again he said hey what are you doing here glad you're here please come back tomorrow you know i needed that little bump just to help me out you know. So, you know, I'm sitting in a room Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, with the full knowledge that, you know, my Eskimo people, we didn't make alcohol. You know, this this alcohol, this disease of alcoholism, this thing was brought here by white people. So, you know, I, I have to get over this. You know, so for me to actually come into the rooms, I'm a little oversensitive. You know, uh, there's a lot of non-vocal language that happens, you know, when we're, you know, just take, for example, when we're in a store today, and we're walking by people whose faces are covered, except for their eyes. And we're left with just that expression, you know. So uh, these expressions, they're, they're, they're waiting for me when I come in the room, you know. Um, my little home group, you know, 
I kind of pushed on that home group to make sure that there was enough literature for Spanish-speaking uh, folks in case they came in. You know, we had to have a, a 12 and 12. We had to have a, a big book with our with our literature. You know, we, we've got our, our Spanish-speaking pamphlets. We have these other pamphlets for uh, these other things that we need after, you know. You know, um, Alcoholics Anonymous has a lot of work to do. You know, let, let's not, you know, candy coat this and, and pat ourselves on the back because we did a workshop today, you know. And, and also, too, let's not uh, lose sight that things are going to take time. And also realize that, you know, with the world is as it is, and with our wide open door policy, everybody comes in the room. Everybody. You know, so as an individual, I have to value everybody. This is something that was hard won and hard fought because I was just deep, deep, deep into my racism and bigotry. You know, and of course it, it ended me up in a very lonely spot, you know serious judgment you know and you know quite frankly you know our, our our native communities you know we're we're in a bad way you know we're trying to figure out who we are how to navigate this world and you know we get this uh disease of alcoholism and we don't want to go into somebody's so somebody's meeting hall that's just covered in white people. We just don't want it because it's we're trying to find out how to be native. You know, uh, being native, a traditional native means that, you know, I don't drink alcohol. You know, I don't participate in these other condiments that are out there in the world. You know? So... You know, the, there are things that are definitely the onus is on me because I have this disease of alcoholism. There are some common things, human threads that I have to hold on to that I don't want to be a white person when I when I come into the room. I just want to be a human being, and so that's the stuff I have to navigate. So anyway, uh, what I learn about valuing others, that means that my thoughts start to shift, and, and my care has to expand. And for me, that meant learning what it meant to be to become more colorblind. So where I found myself was at an Oregon area meeting and they discussed a uh, something having to do with some native thing somewhere. And so I could put my two cents worth as far as this is one native man with some common threads with other native people and I can express this and you'll find this to be genuinely true. So 
you know, one thing that is certain is that after 80 plus years of being in existence, Alcoholics Anonymous is still 89% white. Still 89% white. You know, I mean, to me, th this is, this is shameful. You know, so, so as a society, what do we do? You know, I mean, that's ultimately what happens, you know, um, our openness that we talk about, you know, this understanding for others and this wanting to be welcome, you know, these are the highest of priorities. You know, I was hitchhiking through uh, uh, Idaho one year, and uh, this guy dropped me off in uh, Hayden, Idaho. I don't know if any of y'all know about Hayden, Idaho, but it's a pretty interesting spot, and it's not really a good spot for a person of color to land it. You know, luckily I made it out of there alive, you know. But I, I've often thought, well, I'll just say, you know, Hayden, Idaho, you know, it, it is a real harbinger of where white supremacist movements started, the Aryan Brotherhood and all these other things. So, you know, I, I know what goes on there, you know. And, and there's a res uh, not far away from that country. And so I wonder what would happen to a native man if he went into an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting in Hayden, Idaho. Is he going to be welcome? Is she going to be welcome? Will they be welcome? You know, you know. I I say this because as a as a society, you know, uh, there are meetings that are around our reservations. Uh, one thing you'll find around our reservations is a lot of separation and a lot of hatred between the two cultures there. And so the importance of Alcoholics Anonymous meetings near the reservation, having some openness is integral for that community building. So as the society, you know, we just need to raise up some of these things. Like for me, as a Oregon area CPC, uh, you know, I get to go talk with some of our Indian education program people and work with some school district uh, superintendents to say, hey, our native people may need a little bit of attention here and we're making an effort. And so when I go there as a member and as a person of color, I bring with me that Alcoholics Anonymous works. I also have to say that there's truth uh, to the fact that most of the struggles that, say, myself as a Native man, 
in not wanting to be part of this society. I'm losing my track of thought. You know, if you could see my hands shake here, I, I'm just—it's uh, easy to get wound up with these things. But the but the point being is, is that Alcoholics Anonymous, as a society, our committee people have an extra bit of care and knowledge that needs to be expressed towards who's not in the room. And that's our accountability. Like when I go have to go give a report to Oregon Area, you know, what, what have you been up to? Well, you know, okay, so I went over here and talked to this, this tribe, or I went over and talked to this uh, place over here. And helped spread what is essentially the message. So, you know, we have these words rattling around, love and tolerance is our code, you know. And I might just say that, you know, uh, that personally I, I need to work on that every day. As a society of Alcoholics Anonymous, we need to work on that every day know that uh, it does take people to speak up, you know. Um, I feel very fortunate that I have learned to allow myself to have my voice and not be intimidated or feel that I'm stepping out of bounds. There's a lot to our access world. I believe that we can say that, you know, my experience doing the step work and doing those sorts of things we do in Alcoholics Anonymous is essentially the same. But I will say that my experience as a Native man walking into a room is different. Gina walking into a room is different. Alex walking into a room is different. Zoraida walking into a room that we feel the difference. You know, a, a lot of it's on me. Essentially, a lot of it really just comes back to me. And if I'm going to listen to love and tolerance is our code, if I'm going to, you know, uh, understand rather than be understood, you know, uh, that means I have to really be open. You know, and, and so for me as a Native man, I get to go out into my Native world and say, you know, I used to hate all these things. You know, today I still have a little bit of anger. You know, at a at a at a guy I knew who used to say, you know, I wouldn't trust the Indian who's not a little bit angry. You know? And it's just part of what 
you know, my evolution from an awfully isolated individual to a human being. And that's the steps to take for me. When I go into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, I take the opportunity from time to time to express my unwillingness that was transformed into willingness. This, these barriers, some of them cultural, some of them self-imposed, that these barriers, they have been removed. You know, I, I, I'll just close with this. I think uh, we're not going to take care of anything today. But the one thing at least we can do is speak up when it's time. Express our concerns, express our opinions, but be unafraid to express. I, I know that in the, uh, the group pamphlet, you know, it, it talks about a group that has some bumping of heads and some arguments, you know, little spats. That's healthy. That's healthy. So, you know, uh, let's not fall back on our feelings and then go into silent mode. I, I think a lot of us, at least it's my experience, that when subjects are broached, they are not as difficult, scary. They're just not what I make them out to be. And when I can let some words fall out of my mouth and can express myself, you know, just like in talking with a sponsor, you know, I feel better because I, you know, I'm done hiding. You know, I hit out plenty under that bush, you know, hit out plenty drunk on the side of some street somewhere, you know, with no voice. So, you know, I, I only hope that, you know, that this is just an opening that we can build upon. There's a vast wealth of experience around this fellowship and even in this valley, uh, plenty enough to handle whatever comes by through, uh, through to come here to Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, it's our experience and I'll, I'll agree completely with what was said earlier about what happened 50 years ago happened 50 years ago. Here we are today. And there's people with much different feelings much different experience, much different education.
it goes without saying that it drives me nuts that we talk about Alcoholics Anonymous taking a damn long time to do things. You know, I'll just point out that we have adapted very quickly to this Zoom thing. And it's going to change things. So, I'm just grateful. You know, it's just really good to be here. Thanks to all the panelists and people who put this together today. I'm Gary, I'm a poet. Thank you so much, Gary. Um, I really appreciate your share. So, just remember, um, two minutes to each question. Um, I just got a whole bunch of questions. The first one is, is your contact information available if anybody needs to contact you? Yeah, it should be on the district website. Great. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, and hopefully I've been around this valley long enough so that enough people, if you ask enough people, you can find me. You know, if I haven't, then I haven't done my job. Great. Thanks. Um, this is a question I want to start with you, but I'd like to hear other people answer as well. Um, this person says, I want to thank everyone for speaking. What I'm hearing is that a lot of people have to show up for themselves to protect themselves. What are some suggestions to create a culture in AA of safety? Safety positions, policies on speaking up when someone is endangered, welcoming, whatever. Well, if you're going to ask me that question, I'm going to put the onus on the individuals in the group. Um, it takes people to speak up. It takes people in your share, you know, throw in safety talk every once in a while. Throw in an experience that happened to you and say, this is what I've seen. This is what happened. This is how I got past it. This is what I learned about this. You know, there's no reason for um, safety to be an off-topic issue. You know, why couldn't it be somebody share about safety? Why couldn't it be about some of these other things, you know? So, you, you know, me personally, you know, I have spoken up in my meetings about safety. I've spoken up about what it means to be inclusive, you know, and as a DCM, you know, I've had to defend some things from time to time, you know, so we defend our right to have a safe place, our right to believe how we want to believe, and if nobody speaks up, nobody knows that's part of that group, so you know, once we start speaking up, it doesn't take long. You know, people talking to it. And then pretty soon they say, oh, those guys are doing that like that. And they're like that. And then pretty soon, you know, the, the predators, the really, really hateful ones, they don't come to that meeting because we're adhering to our principles. Great. Thanks. Another question. When I look at the long form of Tradition 10, I don't see anything there that contradicts doing this work at the group level. 
In other words, this is not an outside issue. It becomes an outside issue only if we take a public political stance. But in our rooms, when we practice inclusivity, we are practicing those principles in all our affairs and protecting our common welfare. Am I off base? Well, uh, as far as I know, we means everybody. We means everybody. You know, there's not much to argue there. Okay, great, thanks. Um, I'm going to make this question for any panelists who'd like to raise their hand. Uh, Zoom has been a godsend for me as a black newcomer in AA. I have never been to an in-person meeting. I did not feel safe even in the groups here, though I tried. I now attend Zoom meetings in LA and Atlanta to help me stay sober. I will admit I am feeling a lot of anxiety about going to in-person meetings in this city. Any encouragement uh, for me and how you made it work? Uh, Gina, you need to unmute yourself. Um, something, I think that's a great question. I don't know if that person is in Medford or Ashland. Are they local? It's sounds like they're local. And what I would um, encourage um, this person to do, because uh, Zoom meetings have saved a lot of our asses, and I'm grateful for them. However, I would encourage this person that being on, go to a local Zoom meeting, get connected with local Zoom meetings, and so that way you can kind of engage and start to immerse yourself into the community. And something that Gary touched on is we got to speak up. And sometimes we have to speak up for ourselves. And when you go to different Zoom meetings that are local, you can fill them out. You can see if they're welcoming as a black person or a person of color. You can see what the culture of that meeting is. So we need each other. And I believe Zoom is great. However, I don't know if Zoom is going to be forever. And the Zoom meetings will allow you to get to know that meeting, that group better. And if that one doesn't work, then go to another Zoom and go to another Zoom. Trust me, you will find your meeting. You'll find your safe place. And if not, call me or call one of us on the panel. I'm just going to throw the panel out there, too. Great. And Zoraida, <laughs> you want to unmute yourself? Zoraida wants to answer that as well. Actually, um, I wanted to uh, answer the question that you asked Gary that you opened to the other panelists. And I can't yeah. your question now, but if you could repeat it. <laughs> uh, okay. Okay. Uh, what I'm hearing is that a lot of people have, is that a lot of people having to show up for themselves to protect themselves. What are some suggestions to create a culture in AA of safety? Example, safety positions, policies on speaking up when someone is endangered, etc. Thank you. Thank you for asking the question. And, um, I love what Gina just shared. One of the things that I, I wanted to share about my experience is we had a member that came into um, our meeting. Um, it was a, it was an English meeting, this particular one, but um, I think he had some sort of 
uh, mental illness, and he would describe it in a very aggressive and violent way. Uh, he wouldn't actually hit people, but he would confront people face to face. Um, we had business meetings about this person, and you know they they said they had a desire to stop drinking, and so you know the doors are always open. Um, what what the meeting decided, and it had to be a group conscience meeting. You know, the had to decide that this is behavior that's unacceptable in our meeting. So as a group, what we decided to do was that um, when this member came in and uh, he started acting out, everyone would stand up. And so any time that happened where he put his hand up and he started to share and he was out of line, the whole meeting, all the members in the meeting would stand up. And so he would know that, wait a minute, this is not acceptable behavior. Um, but things like that, but, but again, it does have to be uh, a group conscience. Um, if, if the group is not supporting um, behavior that's, or, or if group is supporting uh, behavior that's unacceptable to me, then I get to find a group that, that supports me and that is welcoming and that's, that's embracing. Thank you. Thanks, Sir. Um, this question from Madeline. Can you speak more on what is appropriate uh, in confronting disruptive members uh, and some solutions for groups to remember that the disruptive person also deserves safety in AA? Um, it's an excellent question. And, and actually, even in our literature, um, and I think it's in the 12 Traditions pamphlet on uh, Tradition 2, where it talks about that. Um, this is talking about common welfare. So I, again, this has to be a group conscious decision about, um, and it may be dependent on what is going on, but, uh, um, our literature even talks about how you may have to ask, kind of piggybacking what Zoraida just said, you may have to ask that person to leave. Um, and, uh, because if the group doesn't survive, they will not be able to be there to help him when he is, he or she is ready. But, um, but, but it really isn't about just, um, I mean, I, I think most groups don't do it um, on a whim. Uh, because uh, the bottom line is I have a, a file folder uh, somewhere um, on a computer of people who've been murdered in Alcoholics Anonymous, um, you know, by people who were not well. And so, you know, we, we do have to, that's why I was saying, like, substitute where you're at. If this happens in your workplace, what would happen? Depending upon the nature of the outburst, you know, someone threatening physical harm. Um, you know, I love, I was in a, a, a safety workshop one time with this girl talking about, but this guy came back, he was really angry, and he had a large unsheathed knife. And we were mad because the men didn't go take care of it. And I was like, wait a minute, why is it the men's responsibility to put on their cape and go take care of the guy with the freaking machete? And I said, what would you do if it happened at work? You would call the police, you know? And and I don't want to put any other member of Alcoholics Anonymous in danger um, by trying to um, handle that type of disruption. So disruption can take on a whole lot of different um, uh, levels, definitions. It depends. But I always say kind of substitute what if you were at work? What, was, what if this was, you know, in the grocery store? Kind of how would you respond to these things? Because um, I did a safety workshop one time with a, uh, with a police officer who was outstanding because um, she talked about weapons. And she said, you know, if there is an active shooter, the first person they're going to go after is you because they're going to see your weapon on your belt 
and you're the first person they're going to take out. Um, and, uh, um, and so it was a very interesting, she really talked about not trying to um, address um, highly escalated people unless you're um, specifically trained for it. Um, I think a group can have a conversation about how to have several members um, who aren't going to be over there like we're going to take care of the kind of thing, uh, matching violence with violence, but maybe some people who as a small group could try to help de-escalate and, and get the person out of the meeting. You know, one of the things my home group had to do because we had an issue where someone had threatened violence um, was we had to do and we had to look at active um, shelter in place. What would we do, you know, because I don't know if any of the rest of you ever think about walking into a room and where's my egress? Where would I go in shelter in place? Where could I go that I could lock the door and be protected, that there's not a glass window, blah, blah, blah. And we actually had to take our home group members through that so we would know where in this big church, because it was only a few places, actually, where we could lock the door from the inside because the home group members were going to have to be the ones responsible for trying to get people sick. Um, so we do a shelter-in-place drill and make sure that all the home group members knew where those places were. Um, but um, I think that when it comes to the disruptive member, it takes a group conscience um, of saying, how can we help? And um, in the end, we've got to make sure that we're safe, because if we're not safe, our meeting's not going to continue and won't be able to help anybody. And that really is tradition, too. Thanks. Alex, this is a question for you. When we do an inventory as a group, how do we bring up lack of uh, diversity in our group? Well, I mean, I think you should probably just say it. Like, if there's, just say it. Um, I, and there's no trick I can give you that will make it feel more comfortable, right? Like, there's no trick that I can give you that will make it feel, like, there was no trick anyone could have given me that would make it feel more comfortable, to be honest. There just wasn't. Like, you just got to say it. I think one way to make it more comfortable is to make it part of the routine, right? If you have a business meeting, there's no reason you have to wait until there's a problem to talk about these things. Can there be a recurring agenda item on your business meeting that says, are there any issues of equity Equity we need to address this month, right? Like, you can say that. Um, and that's a good thing to do. Like, we can, there is no reason that, that we can start talking about racism today. Like we can start talking about how the lives of our black membership matter in AA today. Um, you, you can just do that. There's no rule that you can't do it. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I, I would just add something that Gary said really spoke to me, you know, recognizing that folks who are coming in from minoritized communities, like I had a story about what you were going to do that was based in my own experiences, right? I had been followed by strangers in hallways who are videotaping me, following me into an elevator doing that. I, you know, I have been asked why I'm in the bathroom I'm in. And when I came to AA, that was my story about all of the membership that was there. And that was some self-work that I had to do, right? To, to recognize that I was, I was telling myself a lie to be defensive and comfortable because I was so angry. And like, I have absolutely, and I shouldn't have been doing this, but I have absolutely looked at the, fo the phone of the woman next to me and seen her texting about me and other trans members in an AA meeting. Like, I've, right? So, like, 
and I shouldn't have been doing that, but I didn't, you know, I talked to my sponsor about it. Like it's, <laughs> so we, I think groups need to work to not be another traumatic experience in the lives of their minoritized membership. And that they can do that through things like a recurring equity uh, agenda item on a business meeting, right? It's not a solution, but it's, it could be part of one. So Terry <clears throat> asked a question and I, I, hence I, I don't I'm not sure who to address this to. Um, speaking more on the 10th tradition and how we can sometimes rest on an outdated interpretation of that tradition. And we have about one minute left. Is there anybody who wants to hit that one really fast? Uh, okay, Madeline. Madeline. Well, I, if I'm uh, if I'm correct, that many times the conversation is about politics, um, sectarian religion. Those kind of things. So people, if you talk about something else, like um, uh, harassment, you know, sexual assault, um, misogyny, gender discrimination, racism, blah, blah blah, people go, those are outside issues. And I always say it's not an outside issue if it's happening inside our meeting rooms. If it's happening inside my meeting room and affecting this meeting, which is the whole idea of when we talk about if a meeting's not safe, it's not is not accessible and we have this whole thing in AA about accessibility. Um, so, you know, it does, we have made it part irrelevant of the discussion that a lot of people have only pigeonholed tradition 10 into things like politics, sectarian religion, um, and not really looked at anything else that's happening within the rooms. Great. Thank you. Oh, Alex yeah. wants to talk. Okay. <laughs> It's two seconds. And I was just, just off what Madeline said. Absolutely like retweet all of that. And if can you, the person who should be mediating that conflict is whoever is the secretary of the meeting, right? And so can you in your business meeting have a conversation about what tradition 10 means with the people who are being the secretary of the meeting, who are going to be the ones who ideally should be saying tradition 10, that's an outside issue or not. They have to make that call in the moment. It can be very hard. Can there be some training for that secretary who's facilitating the meeting so that those things are, so that the group is safer? You know, and it doesn't have to be long, just a conversation. Clarify, what does this mean for us? That's all. Love y'all. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.